Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter. This will be the last time that you hear that from me. Not about the Gospel of John. I have a feeling that with the text before us and with some breaks, we will be in the Gospel of John until sometime in 2024. But this is the end of this marvelous, wonderful fourth chapter in which we see a great many blessings to us. Our text this morning is the last section of this fourth chapter, beginning at verse 43 and going down until the last verse, verse 54. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified... that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee... He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word. That you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and our lives. That as we study it, we would see the glory of our Savior and that we would long to be more like Him. We would long to serve our Savior. We would long to know Him in all of His grace and truth. This we ask in Christ's mighty name. Amen. What is faith? That is perhaps the most important question that we can ask ourselves. It's important because faith is at the center of salvation. Faith is not excitement in religious things. Faith is not hoping that things will get better. 
The saying goes that seeing is believing. But faith says believing is seeing. That's what we have here this morning. This is a story about the importance of real faith. Real faith can be weak and imperfect. But true faith in Jesus grows because Jesus nourishes it and rewards it. And so this morning I would like us to see three things about faith and these people that Jesus interacts with. First, we see those who are needing to see. They need to see something. Second, we see one who is needing to believe. An official who comes to meet Jesus and he is needing to believe. And then third, we see the reward of faith that Jesus gives. Needing to see, needing to believe, and the reward of faith. Well, we are now at the end of chapter 4, and we have seen so much so far. You might even be asking yourself, could this passage here at the end possibly be important? After all, we've already seen Jesus reaching out to a needy sinner at the well. We've seen Jesus telling us about true worship. And then we've seen genuine witnessing and evangelism as an entire town in Samaria comes to know Jesus as the Savior of the world. So why ought we not just skip ahead to something else that's more important? This is where our pattern of preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible benefits us. We've come to this place, so now let's see what God wants us to see in this place. And the passage starts very simply. Jesus has spent two glorious days in Samaria. You can just imagine what those days must have been like. The woman had her entire life turned around. And she had to go off and to tell others about Jesus, and they had come to Jesus also. And they begged Jesus to stay with them so that he would be with them and he would teach them. They would not have wanted those days to end. Once they found out their need for Jesus, they did not want to let go. But Jesus has more work to do. He must go on, and so he departs for Galilee, his home country. Now, there is an odd statement here in verse 44. There is a parenthetical that can cause us some confusion. John writes, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, what makes this statement odd is that we see a similar statement in the other Gospels. But when we see it, it is always when Jesus is going away from Galilee. He is leaving his hometown, and that makes sense. Because if, like all other prophets, Jesus is without honor in his hometown, you would imagine that he would leave a place where he is not honored. That he would go and preach and teach in another location. This is the only place in the Gospels where we read this, where Jesus is coming to Galilee, not going from Galilee. 
And so we might ask the question, why does Jesus intentionally go there? And then, verse 45 makes us even more confused. John writes, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, that's not what we expect. John has just told us, Jesus' words, that a prophet is without honor in his country. And so, how could he then be going to his home country and receiving honor, receiving a welcome? Well, some commentators try to fix the problem. They'll say that no, what it is is that Jesus' home area was Judea. And after all, he was leaving Judea. That's why he had to go through Samaria to come to Galilee. And so, what Jesus means here is he's leaving Judea. But there's a problem with that. The Bible never refers to Judea as Jesus' hometown or his home country. He didn't grow up there. He grew up in Nazareth. Everyone knows that. You may even remember that his disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Jesus was not associated with Judea. So we solve one problem by creating another. Others will say, no, no, what is meant here is that Jesus came from heaven, which of course he did. We see that in John chapter 1. And he was leaving his home in heaven to be here on earth. But that makes even less sense because there is no way that we can say that Jesus was dishonored in heaven if heaven was his home. That makes absolutely no sense. And again, we solve a problem by creating a worse one. A third solution is, they say that this refers specifically to Nazareth. After all, remember, Jesus did grow up in Nazareth. And that was the place where he wasn't appreciated. But we don't have any account here of Jesus going to Nazareth. So what has to be assumed is, Jesus would come from Jerusalem, through Samaria, take a side trip into Nazareth, have bad things happen, and then leave and come to Galilee, all without any of that being reported. It doesn't make any sense. And the word here for hometown is actually probably better translated home country or homeland. The Greek word doesn't just refer to a city. You know, if you were born in Katy... Katy would be your hometown, but you might even say, if someone asked you, what's your hometown, you might say Houston, because people might not know where Katy is. And even more, you might say Texas, because of course, you're Texans, and you want to speak good of Texas. That would be your home country, your home area, distinguished from other parts of the country. And so the best way is to see Galilee as being part of Jesus' home country. Now, why is this important? It's important because it makes us see something about Jesus. Jesus is not like us in many ways, but particularly in his motivation for what he does. We often do things for success. We don't seek out difficulties. We try to determine what works well, and then we do it over and over again. And then we even become evangelists to others about the only way to do certain things. No one seeks out problems and difficulties. 
I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I guarantee that none of you has woken up one morning and said, I am going to intentionally take the route to work in which there is the greatest gridlock and traffic. You don't seek that out. It's just not what we do. But Jesus often does. It's because he has a purpose and a reason. We saw this earlier. Jesus must go through Samaria. And you remember, he didn't have to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, most Jews didn't go through Samaria. They went around Samaria so they wouldn't have to be around Samaritans. But Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why? Because there was a woman at a well who needed him. And there was a town who would not know about him unless he went. He's purposeful. And so now he is going to his homeland, not for welcome, not for honor, but to show us something about faith. One of the most dangerous things that we can do is assume that Jesus is like us in his motivation and actions. We try to mold Jesus into our assumptions. As soon as you stop doing that, you will begin to understand Jesus. You look at God's word, how Jesus is described in God's word. And that requires humility. It requires an eagerness to study the Bible. To know who Jesus is. Well, verse 45 continues our confusion when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So we've figured out now that Jesus is in Galilee, his hometown, his home area. And we're told that Jesus testified that prophets have no honor there. So we would expect him to get the cold shoulder in Galilee. That no one would be excited to see him. That they would be off-putting. That they would be critical. Except he doesn't. Look at verse 45. They welcomed him. And this word means that they received him. They were eager to have him. The word is very clear here in the Greek. Now, why would they do that? Why would there be an eagerness of people who did not want to honor Jesus when Jesus has come? Shouldn't they reject Jesus according to verse 44? Maybe John's making a mistake here. Maybe he's got his timelines messed up. Maybe he means to talk about another type of people. Well, we know that's not the case because this is God's word, but what's going on? Well, John doesn't leave us confused. He tells us why the Galileans acted this way in the rest of verse 45. They welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too, had gone to the feast. They welcomed Jesus because they had seen his miracles. You remember this? This takes us back to chapter 2 of John. Specifically in verse 23. After Jesus has cleansed the temple, we see that he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. You remember Jesus was acting and doing signs and many saw them and they believed. You may remember that that's the first thing that Nicodemus said when he saw Jesus in chapter 3 verse 2. He said, Jesus, we know you are a teacher come from God. Why? 
Because only one who comes from God can do the things that you've been doing. Their focus and their emphasis is on the miracles and the signs. They were genuinely excited to see Jesus. The question is why? Do you remember how Jesus reacted to the many who believed? It was odd at the time, wasn't it? Jesus, John tells us, did not believe in them. We're told that's because he knew all people and he knew what was in them. He knew that they didn't have real faith, that they didn't trust in him. They only wanted to see the miracles that he was doing. Their focus was only on what they could see, not on what they could believe. They needed to see Jesus in action. They had gone to the feast and they had seen what Jesus had done. And that had impressed them. And they wanted now to see more. You can almost imagine as Jesus comes in, the reaction he gets, Oh look, the miracle worker is back. Do some more miracles. You'll never believe what he did at the feast. Come on, do that one again. Do it again, Jesus. Show us. Here, look, here's a water jug. Come on, make some wine for us, Jesus. Come on, you can do it. We know you can. We could just imagine that's their reaction. They had enjoyed the show. They enjoyed the benefits that Jesus brought. And they wanted more of them. They were consumers. They were in it for what they could get out of it. How many people in the American church today does that describe? They are glad for Jesus if he will fix their life. And the quicker, the better. They're willing to believe as long as it brings benefits to them or as long as it's spectacular. They're not interested in Jesus for who he is, the Savior of the world. What a contrast with the Samaritans. The Samaritans had seen no signs or wonders. They had seen no miracles, but they knew who Jesus was, and they acknowledged him as the Savior of the world, and they were glad to be with him and wanted to be with him as long as they could. Well, now into this situation comes the official. If the people of Galilee are needing to see, this man is someone who needs to believe. Jesus is back at Cana, and John reminds us that that's where his first miracle took place. And so about 20 miles away in Capernaum, this official hears about it. It had to have been that the news had spread. Jesus would have been a very big deal in Cana. You could just imagine how this is. Even if you weren't at the wedding, you must have heard the story about the wedding and the wine at least 42 times. You know how this works, right? You have friends who do this, who repeat a story that they like over and over again. Now, I have to confess that oftentimes I'm that friend. There's something that I like that's happened and I want to tell people about it. I want to share it with them. And I find opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And, and one of the challenges and difficulties is as I tell people this story over and over and over again, my wife is often with me. So she sits there patiently as I tell it for the hundredth time in her hearing. But that's what was going on here at Cana. 
over and over and over again. And this man, 20 miles away, says, Jesus is here. I've got to go and see him. He saddles up his horse and he says, listen, if this man can make water from wine, if he can do signs and wonders in Jerusalem, he can surely help me and my son. Now, who is this man? He is a royal official. This word for official is very different than the word that we see that is used to describe Nicodemus earlier, a ruler of the Jews. This word is related to the word for king. We might even literally translate it a little king. But what it really means is someone who serves as a higher up in the court of the king. And of course the king here is Herod Antipas. He is the king because Rome made him the king. Not because he's descended from David or from Solomon or anyone else. Because Rome really had two rules when they took over a foreign country. The first was they wanted tax money. And the second was they didn't want any problems. And if you wanted to be in charge and you kept the tax money flowing and you kept the problems under a lid, they were glad to call you king, prince, emperor, big honcho, whatever you wanted, as long as you kept things going. And that's what they did with Herod. They made him king of this region. And so this man is an official at Herod's court, which would mean that he's very wealthy. He's also very powerful. He would have had many, many things that others would have wanted. But it probably also means that he wasn't godly. He wasn't moral. After all, he is working in the administration of Herod. Now think about Herod and his family. Herod's ancestor is the one who had all of the boy children in Israel under a certain age massacred. Herod Antipas himself here is the one who will have John the Baptist arrested, jailed, and then beheaded. He is also the one who had stolen his brother's wife and was committing adultery. So this is not exactly an administration known for being good and on the up and up. And if this man is successful in the administration, he has to be of the same sort. But clearly, he loved his son. And this should not surprise us either because... Even people we know who are thieves or liars or who are dishonest, they love their children. They care for their children. And this man realized that he was at his limits, that his money couldn't help, that his power couldn't help. One commentator puts it this way. There are many things money can't buy. Money can buy a king-size bed, but it can't buy sleep. Money can buy a great house, but it can't buy a home. Money can buy a companion, but it can't buy a close friend. Money can buy books, but it cannot buy brains. Money can buy a church building, but it cannot buy entrance into heaven. And so this man realizes that all that he has, as much as it is envied by everyone else, cannot save his son. And so he comes to Jesus out of a sense of desperation. You can almost hear it in his voice in verse 47. He comes to Jesus down and he says, Come down and heal my son, for he is at the point of death. Now the word here for asked can also be translated beg. 
And the nature of the tense of this verb is something that occurs over and over and over again. This is not just one inquiry. This is a man, you can imagine, tugging at Jesus' sleeve, maybe even falling to his knees at his feet, begging him over and over again. No, you don't understand, Jesus. I don't know how long he has. You, he's a wonderful boy. Let me tell you about my boy. You've got to come and help my boy. My wife is a wreck. He's begging Jesus. He needs Jesus to do something for him. He says, you need to come. My son is about to die. So he does recognize his need. He doesn't need Jesus to point that out. So that makes him different than Nicodemus, different even than the Samaritan woman. Jesus doesn't need to explain to him the nature of his need. And also, this man knows and sees that Jesus can satisfy that need. He's heard the stories. He knows what Jesus can do. He has some idea of who Jesus is. The official knows that he cannot solve the problem alone. Working harder will not do it. Money will not do it. Political connections will not do it. He's at an end. Have you come to that place in your life? One of the great challenges of being American is the belief that if we just work hard enough, everything will work out. Now, you do know that we do not really suffer here in America. There is no widespread starvation in America. There has been no horrible war that has devastated our land and burnt our homes. Our problems are really first world problems, aren't they? We have problems like we pull out our phone and we see the spinning wheel for 10 seconds. And we say, the coverage here is horrible. Can you believe it? Or I had to wait five minutes in the drive-thru line to get my food. Can you believe how slow that restaurant is? These are the problems that, that we face. But you need to see your true, real problem. You need to look beyond your present circumstances, which for virtually all of us is very good. And look to your relationship with God, your creator. Do you see that you fall short of the glory of God? Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know that you need reconciliation and hope? Then you will see your need for Jesus if you recognize that. Now how does Jesus respond to this request from this official? We would expect Jesus to be compassionate and to offer help. And if you haven't already looked down and seen the spoiler, you would expect Jesus to say something like, well, of course I'll come. Let's go right now. I'll drop everything. I'd hate to see a child suffer. I'm compassionate. Because after all, isn't that what you and I would do? If we knew we could help a child who was dying, we wouldn't say, wait a minute, I'm in the middle of something. We would go right away. Now think about it. This is the most obvious and sentimental need for help. It's a child who's dying. But Jesus responds with a rebuke. Do you see that in verse 48? 
Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why does Jesus do that? Well, Jesus knows the real need here. Yes, the son is in need of healing, but there's more. This official has an imperfect faith. It needs to grow. He had the faith to come to Jesus, to ask Jesus for help. But there's more going on there. Perhaps your Bible has a footnote in verse 48. If you don't, I'll help you. This is again an occasion where someone needs to write the Texas version of the Bible. Because this verse is better translated, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. Jesus is talking not just to this man, he's talking to all of the Galileans around here that we see have welcomed Jesus only because they want a miracle show. And what Jesus is saying, you're here, you're watching this conversation, you want me to do something spectacular so you can go and tell your aunts and uncles and cousins about it. That's what you want. Unless you see it, you won't believe. Jesus knows why they've welcomed him here in Galilee. And he doesn't want the official to be in the same place that the Galileans are. Do you notice that Jesus is not drawn by popularity? In fact, he's actually opposed to popularity. Can you imagine the reaction of the onlookers as Jesus says this? They all whip out their phones and they start tweeting. What an insensitive fool. How can he stand by while a child dies? Who is this Jesus? He's the worst ever. That's what their response would be. But Jesus knows our greatest need is not physical or material, but spiritual. Let me ask you, do you want Jesus to fix your life? To fix your marriage and family? To give you the things that you want? Because that's the testimony of many. But what you need is to be born again. Your greatest desire should be for Jesus to be your Lord, not your servant. And the man's response shows this. It shows his faith growing right before our eyes. Now remember, this is a powerful official. He does not turn to Jesus and respond and say, you are coming with me. We could imagine that he could have made that happen by physical force. He's probably got a small entourage with him. He's an, a kingly official. He also doesn't try to bribe Jesus. He doesn't say, well, I understand how you feel, Jesus, but there's a little something in it for you if you come with me to Capernaum. I'll take care of you. You and your disciples. What do you all need? How many denarii would make your disciples feel good? He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to use his influence. He doesn't look at Jesus and say, do you have any idea who I am? No. None of that. He doesn't try to throw his weight around. Instead, he humbles himself and he asks again. Look with me at verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, the word that he uses here, sir, is a word that is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as Lord. It is a term of honor and respect. This servant of the king is showing honor to a carpenter who is homeless. Now, 
I'm using this phrase intentionally. He's showing honor. Because Jesus is honored, even if he's not honored in his hometown. And there's also, if you'll notice it, a slight change in what he asks for. He says, my child needs you before he dies. He says, come down before my child dies. He wants his child to meet Jesus. Because he has met Jesus. And he understands who Jesus is. And I think this man has come to the realization that while he would love Jesus to heal his child, he knows it's more important for his child to meet Jesus before he dies than even if he continue to live. That's how crucial knowing Jesus is. This official has been confronted with the real Jesus and now he knows. Jesus is not a means to an end. And I can say this about you right now. You need Jesus before you die. And you will die. So will I. That's the sure thing, right? The sure thing is death and taxes. We don't want to think about it, even when we have to think about it. But even for young children, you should be thinking about this. That you're not immortal. There will come a day when you will die. And this child was confronted with death. So there's no guarantee that you will live as long as your grandma and your grandpa. You need to know Jesus now. That's why we need to learn about Jesus and come to Jesus. Only Jesus gives us hope. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus will grow our faith so that we will have peace. Well, lastly, we see the reward of faith in what follows. Jesus responds now in verse 50 in remarkable compassion. He says, go, your son will live. And I don't think, even though we can't hear the tone of voice, I don't think this is flippant or sarcastic or dismissive. It's not, get out of here, your son's going to live anyway. No, it's more, I understand, you can go now. Your child lives. And actually, the tense here of this verb is not a future tense, it's a present tense. He says, your son is living now. He lives and he will live, is the implication. Jesus was never lacking in compassion, but he's brought resolution to the greater need here. Now that the man is solidified in his faith, Jesus gives him his word about the son. And do you see how simple and direct it is? And we see immediately the effect that Jesus had on this man. What does he do? Does the official beg Jesus to come back with him? Well, that's good, Jesus. Thank you for your word. But come on, I want you to come touch my son. Does he try and insist on, just Jesus, just give me a little tiny sign. Just something I can see so I know my son will be all right. No. John tells us he simply takes Jesus at his word. He believes Jesus. If for so many, seeing is believing. For this man, believing was seeing. It was reality. That was enough. He left, John says. He went on his way. And this is a sure sign to us of his faith in Jesus. Could you imagine him leaving if he didn't believe what Jesus said? 
But John tells us he did believe. And his actions show us. Would any parent at this point have said something like, well, I guess I gave it the best chance I could. And just left? No, never. When the child's life is at stake, the parent would use every ounce of energy to save his child. If he didn't believe Jesus, he would have stayed and harassed him. He would have done all he could for his son. But his faith has given him comfort and peace. He knows who Jesus is. He believes Jesus, and that's all he needs. Jesus is calling you right now to trust him. He's given you his promises in his word. Take hold of them now. Don't miss them. Don't take them for granted, especially you young people today. True saving faith believes Jesus' word. This is true even if your faith is weak or imperfect. It was for this man. Faith is not what saves. Jesus saves. Even a weak faith can lay hold to a strong Savior. If you have doubts, bring them to Jesus. And then this man begins his way home. And there's something else that's remarkable here. He doesn't go home right away. We understand this because he meets his servants on the way back. Perhaps they're wondering where the man is. They know that his son is recovered. And they come out from Capernaum to meet him on the way. They were probably wondering what had happened. And they want to give him the good news. And when the man asks when his child recovered, the answer is, don't miss this, yesterday. Now this man could have been back at Capernaum in a couple of hours after Jesus spoke to him. It's a small detail. But this official so trusted Jesus that he didn't need to rush home. He probably said to himself, my son is fine. His mom can take care of him and make him a meal. I'm here with Jesus. Why should I rush away? He probably wanted to spend every moment he could with Jesus. You see, Jesus continues rewarding his faith with that news. It's no coincidence of how the boy got better. It was that very hour, the seventh hour, one o'clock by our reckoning, when Jesus spoke to the man, and that is when the fever broke. The official was able to continue to exercise faith and to believe. Look at verse 53. The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. But wait, as they say, there's more. Because his whole household believed too. Because true faith is contagious. When we tell others about what Jesus has done, they too come to believe in Jesus. He must have said to his wife what had happened, and she believed. And he spoke to the rest of his household. Perhaps even depending on the age of this child, the child believed. The whole household believed because of what Jesus had done. Jesus can reach anyone. That's what this whole section of John's Gospel is about. There's kind of a section here between the first sign and the second sign. In John 2 and at the end of John 4. Look at who Jesus reaches 
an immoral woman, Samaritan heretics, an ungodly official in wicked Herod's court. But also look at who misses it. Those who are worshiping in the temple. The Jews at the feast. The people in Jesus' hometown. Nicodemus, the ruler of Israel. This is a warning for us today in the church. Don't miss it. Don't miss Jesus just because you're here and Jesus is familiar to you. Faith is trusting in Jesus. It is looking to Christ when we know that we aren't able. But the good news of the gospel is that when you are weak, God is strong. Even a weak faith in a strong God is enough. You don't need to be perfect either in your actions or even in your faith. Look to Jesus today. Trust His Word. He is able to save. Let's pray.